and take your Bibles this morning to John chapter 17. We read this already the scriptures, so I want to just get into it now. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. And this is part one, because we're going to be in it for a little bit here, but uh, the message this morning is primarily an, an, an introductory message. And this was prayed before he entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Although there are some commentators that argue here that John was actually recording what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. The problem is, what John has written is not what we read in the synoptics, and the synoptics who recorded Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is not what John recorded. So the question here arises, is there really two prayers or just one? And I am strongly of the opinion that there are two prayers, and I believe it is seen and I can prove it for you there if you look at John chapter 18 and verse number 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what? The prayer that he just prayed and the, the also the, the last uh, instructions that he gave to his disciples says when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron where there was a garden, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. And then there he prays again to his heavenly Father. Uh, it's interesting, he left most of the disciples right there in one place and told them when he, when he left them to watch and pray. Then he took the three, Peter, James, uh, James and John, with him into the inner garden and then he also instructed them you guys sit here I'm going to go right over there but you watch and pray that you enter not into temptation and they promptly fell asleep a whole bunch but uh, as I pointed out here John 18 1 clearly shows then that Jesus prayed this prayer before he crossed the Kidron to climb Mount, the Mount of Olives and enter the Garden of Gethsemane. There's, when we compare these two prayers, notice that both reveal Jesus' resolution and horror. Jesus was facing an awful thing. He prayed in the Garden, if it be possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But he also expresses great resolution. For Mark tells us that he set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem to die. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I believe the difference we have here, it's... Uh, is that in John chapter 17, there it's, and I call it the high priestly prayer. This is Christ's high priestly prayer for his own. But this prayer focuses on the disciples' welfare. Whereas, when he went into the garden and prayed to the Father, he's focusing upon his own submission to the will of God. So now this prayer then stands on its own as is seen by the opening words. Um, excuse me. Does not stand on its own as is seen in the opening words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So these words, what I mean by standing on its own, is uh, this is not a prayer that's isolated from something. It's not independent of everything. It is a continuation, actually, of what he has previously stated. And that's seen in these, these words. Likely as a reference to what was spoken at the end of the preceding chapter there. These words. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. 
take heart. I have overcome the world. And this prayer is praying for them the same thing and again for himself. The reassurance that this is true. I have overcome the world. When Jesus prayed in the presence of the disciples that they might see that while they suffered, the Father would be keeping, protecting, and making them holy as they remained in the world while He departed to go to the Father. So, this they needed to hear this. The prayer in Gethsemane, uh, they didn't really need to hear that, but they needed to hear this one. They slept in Gethsemane, but they heard this one. So they also hear the themes and the words that are here clearly tie back to the to uh, the prayer uh, of this prayer back to the previous discourse in chapters thirteen thirty one, then through sixteen thirty three. The disciples needed to hear and understand the unity of the Trinity in this work of redemption. This is Ron kind of touched upon that right, right there in his uh, talk at the table. God had a united purpose. Mankind failed, Adam failed, but Jesus was going to be raised up as the second Adam, because God needs to do this work. So here we have the unity of the Trinity in the work of redemption. They also needed to see that the Father truly loved them and that Jesus came from the Father to do His will in saving them. They're going to go through some very difficult times and they need to have this assurance. Guys, the Father loves you. And what what I'm doing in leaving you is for your benefit. It is necessary for you to have this assurance by these words. Then they also needed to understand that Jesus' departure would not leave them alone because he promised the Holy Spirit would come to be their companion in his name. That would take place on the day of Pentecost as we read there in Acts chapter 2. But from this point to Acts chapter 2, they don't have the Holy Spirit as their companion. But they need to understand that that promise is coming. Therefore, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Thirdly, the prayer here is a summary of sorts of the whole Gospel of John up to this point. The principal theme Here is the glorification of the Father through the glorification of the Son. What does that mean? It means honoring. It means rewarding. It means putting Him in the limelight, so to speak. And why would Jesus need to be put into the limelight? Well, He is the Savior of the world. And... When the Son obeys the Father to do the Father's will and carries it out perfectly as God ordained that it should be, then the Father Himself is glorified in the Son. And that really is the main emphasis of the first part of that prayer. Glorify me. I've glorified you on earth, accomplishing what you sent me to do. Now, I'm returning to you. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Now think about that. Jesus created the world. And I believe Jesus is the the Yahweh of the Old Testament scriptures in many places when he deals with Moses, with Abraham, and, and the fathers, and then with Moses, and then with the children of Israel through through that period. He created them. He is directing them. And they're failing at every turn. So the Father says, you are the only one that can fix it. 
You're the only one that can fix it. So, then, they and the Father needs to be revealed in a real sense to the, the people in the world and through his own, his own that he redeemed here, the disciples in this case. And so the scriptures are very clear here, they kept his word. That is his teaching with respect to their mission, which was, and then they're in their, seen in these things, their unity, their mission, and then their final destiny into the presence of both Father and the Son. We're looking forward to that. Then fourthly here, the synoptics record several references to Christ's prayers. Jesus got alone and prayed. Many times he prayed all night. But we never hear, we never read anything that was said. The disciples apparently were, were hearing it on occasion because they were so impressed with the praying of Christ, they came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so we have what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is recorded there in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and then Luke 11 to, to 4. And everybody, many people know the Lord's Prayer. It's prayed like uh, in, in ritual settings in many churches. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And... Forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so on. But the prayers that are recorded that we know of are his suffering on Gethsemane and on the cross. And then John documents two other additional prayers, the one at the tomb of Lazarus in chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, and then one in chapter 12, when the Gentiles came to see him, and uh, then he turns and prays, Father, glorify me. That's chapter 12, verses 27 to 28. Now, both of these prayers, and, and this one before us in John chapter 17, were for the benefit of those who heard it. We, we, for example, at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus stated, I said this, he's praying, and he said, I said this, his prayer to God, uh, on account of the people standing around. In other words, Lord, you didn't need to hear this from me, but they do. In chapter 12, God responded. He said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the people who were standing around said, what was that? Some said, I think an angel spoke to him. Others said, now nah, it's just thunder. Looks like it's fixing to rain. And Jesus rebuked them at that point, saying, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. For your sake, not mine. And it points out their unbelief. Then number six, should it, it should be noted here that Jesus can pray for us, but he never can pray with us. What do I mean by that? I mean that his relationship to the Father is unique. He does not share our weaknesses and our, and our follies. Compare the, 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 the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, where he taught them to pray, Jesus cannot say, Father, forgive me. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts. He has none. Neither can he pray protection against Satan's temptations because he's holy. Then finally, observe the quality there of Jesus praying. And we need to learn to pray this way. It's it has a childlike quality. He's God come in the flesh. But he prays in a very childlike quality of confidence 
and complete trust. It's a reverent prayer. Father. Abba. Father. Some have kind of cheapened it. Daddy. It's not daddy. It's it there there is a, an intimacy in it. And daddy some can can convey that. I'm I'm not totally against it, but but it's there but there is not this acknowledgement of he is my father. I revere and respect and fear him. He is my father. It's submissive. Very submissive. Not my will, but yours be done. And the prayer has three sections. Verse 5, verses Jesus prays for himself, asking the Father to reward his obedience. Glorify me. How will he reward his obedience? He will give to Jesus a people to save. Jesus didn't go to the cross. See, this, this is why I believe in the doctrines of grace. Jesus did not go to the cross hoping that somebody in their free will would say, oh, I think I would like Jesus as my Savior. God's not going to leave that up to us frail human beings. He's going to choose a people out for himself and he is going to bring them to the Son, and the Son is going to save them, and they will be saved. That is a powerful truth. Glorify me. And then Christ prays for his disciples, those who were given to him out of the world, there in verses 6 through 19. There he prays, I am praying for them. These, these 12 are very important individuals. I say the, the 12. There's only 11 now because Judas is, has left them. But they are, they're the 12. But they are the foundation of this. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles. They're the apostles of Christ. They're the sent ones. They're going to be the ones that go out and take this message and God is going to use them to multiply the gospel among men. So that's the third area. He's going, Christ is going to pray for those who will be reached by these twelve. I pray not for these only, but also uh, for, for all that, that are gathered in. And that's verses 20 through 26. That they may all be one. He's praying for the church. So as I said earlier, this message is, is uh, primarily introductory, so let's really get into the message here. And first of all is, is Jesus' argument, the Son's argument. The Son addressed the Father, again, He addressed God as His Father, my Father. Being the beloved Son, again, one cannot but be reminded of Psalm 2. There are so many references to Psalm 2. It just blows my mind. But here, but in Psalm 2, in verse number 7, God said, I will tell the decree. He's God, and when God decrees something, whatever He decrees comes to pass. A decree is a formal order. A declaration of something that cannot but irresistibly come to pass. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me. That's Jesus talking. You are my son. Here's a mystery of mysteries. That in the, etern in the eternal past. Eternity past. God the Father. begot a son how this is a mystery of mysteries 
And then in the relationship of the, of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is begotten. Well, don't try to understand it. Just believe it. You are my Son. This day I have begotten you. So that, that decree then is followed by an invitation. Ask of me. Oh, how the scriptures just come together and in, in a myriad of ways. But here's one. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you believe that? Doesn't look like it right now, does it? I mean, Jesus Christ in the world today is not much thought of except among his people, a few that are gathered in the churches. It's not in the nations. But he, but he, God is answering that prayer. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So here's this is all coming together here in this prayer. Right here. This is the son's response to the, to the father saying, ask of me. He said, so now Jesus is saying, here I'm asking. Glorify your son since you have given him authority over all flesh. Notice that in verse 2. You have given him authority. Where did that authority come from? God decreed a decree. You're my son. Now ask of me, and I will give the nations your, uh, to, to you as a heritage in the ends of the earth to you for a possession. And again, here's this powerful argument which grants to all believers the right to access the Father, we, it's founded here on this divine, divine principle. Jesus informed the disciples in John chapter 16, verses 26 and 20 to 28. In that day, you will ask in my name. It goes back to Psalm 2. Ask of me. Jesus is now telling his own who are in him. Ask me. In that day you will ask in my name, uh, in my authority. You have sent you, given him authority. Father, you have given me authority over all flesh. Now, disciple, listen to me. You can ask me. In my name, in my authority. And I do not say to you that you will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from, the, from God. What Jesus is saying here is, you have, to, just like me, you have direct access to, your, to the Heavenly Father. Ask! I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving to go and going to the Father. But when I'm leaving, I'm giving you authority in my name. That's what it means when you ask in Jesus' name. It's not a, a, a kind of a magical throw, a thing you throw out there. Lord, here's my prayer. Make sure that I throw the Jesus card in there so that uh, it's kind, kind of a a mag magical mantra here. No, it's authority. So when you pray, you better make sure that what you're asking God for has the authority of Jesus Christ. See, the Father's love for His own, as Jesus states, requires a response from the disciples. And the response then revealed their faith in accessing the Father what was for what would be required of them in order for them to do His will. And this is implied here in Jesus' reference to his coming to the Father to take the throne uh, on Mount Zion. He said, I'm coming to you. I'm going to be with you. I'm coming to your, into your presence. What is, it, what is that? 
I have set my king. God says in Psalm 2, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. So this crowning of glory and honor, which Psalm 8 and verse 5 tells us of, is necessitated here by his first humbling himself even to death, according to Philippians 2. He thought equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a, of a human being, and in, being in, found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Wherefore, what? God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And one day, all of the God deniers and the Christ deniers are going to bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. It will not result in their salvation but it will be their ultimate humbling have you bowed the knee to Jesus you're going to, you're going to one day whether you like it or not you're going to one day thirdly here the heart of all interaction with the father in the things of God is the will of God and here's this to me is is extremely important when Jesus uh, was teaching this multitude there. And uh, his mother and brothers thought, you know, he, he's, I think he's crazy. He's, he's got a screw loose there. We're going to have to come take care of him. So they came to him and they wanted to see him. And so a messenger came into Jesus and said, your mother and your brothers are out here. They want to see you. And then, Je so how did Jesus respond? He waved to the crowd that sat in front of him. And he said this, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoa. Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Then in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Are you doing His will? So many who profess to follow Christ show their true loyalty by their fixation on the things of the world. He's repeated over and over again. You are in the world, but you're not of the world. I've called you out of the world. I'm praying for you, but I'm not praying for the world. Oh boy. So John admonishes us there in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. I repeat this again and again. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So then Jesus defined eternal life as knowing the Father and intimate relational knowing. I'm going to expand on that in a minute here in the message. But there is there can be no knowing of the Father by those set on loving the world. The love of the Father is not in him. Many profess faith in Jesus, but their love is for the world, and it proves that the love of the Father is not in them. That brings us to number two here, the son's attitude. The son's attitude, again, was one of humble but confident expectation. This confidence is seen in the act of lifting his eyes to heaven. You know, there's a, here's a practical thing. You look around us, and, you, and, and I struggle with this myself. And, and I think the Lord's teaching me, little by little, drilling it into my stubborn skull, that 
what I see going around around me is not the indication of what is. But the faith is the expectation of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is God doing? It may not be evident. But we need to act like it is happening. That's faith. Faith says it's happening. And Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. He's about to go through an awful thing. But it's the will of God. And it is necessary to bring about the will of God. And the purpose of God. And his love relationship with the Father was unquestioned. Open and firm. He thus appealed to his obedience in prayer. He said, as he said at Lazarus' tomb, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. What he's saying was, not that you just listened with your ear, but that you acted on it. That That what I asked for, you gave to me. Wow. That's John 11, 41 and 42. It is this confidence that Jesus sought to instill then in his disciples in these final instructions. So in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, my authority, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Sometimes you ask and it doesn't seem like uh, God has answered you. But I want to tell you something. If he said it, he's doing it. He is doing it. This is a basic instruction. Ask. And isn't it interesting that in this section, this, this final instructions, he's repeated that eight times. Eight times. Times. Go back and count them. Secondly here, Jesus recognized that he was in a spiritual battle that required heaven's attention. Here I'm going to ring in Revelation. And, and, and uh, I'm not going to dwell on it much, but Revelation 19 gives us a vision. The vision of, a, of Christ riding on a white horse. And, and the, in that vision, he is referred to as faithful and true. What does that mean? Faithful and true. That's verse number 11 of Revelation 19. What does that mean, faithful and true? That means you can count on him for the facts. He's real. And then he is, he is uh, said to be a, a name given to him. A name was given to this writer. The Word of God. That's verse number 13. The Word of God. In other words, whatever Jesus says, you know came from God. It's God's Word. He is, he is the living Word of God. This book is the written Word of God Jesus is the living Word of God. And this vision is the fuller description of the writer of the first seal in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Riding out with a crown and a bow, conquering and to conquer. That's what Jesus is doing now in this gospel age. In Revelation 6, the opening of the first seal, that's Jesus' first coming. Revelation 19 is his second coming. And when he comes riding on his white horse, he is faithful and true. Everything he promised in the first coming is fulfilled in the second coming. He is the word of God.
Many regard the writer of the first seal as the Antichrist. And you may be thinking to yourself, no, isn't that the Antichrist? And the reason why is because uh, of the character of the horses that follow him. There's a red horse speaking, uh, speaking of war and the taking of peace from the earth. Isn't it interesting? World War I happened early in this last century. We're in the next century now. <laughs> I keep got to keep reminding myself. World War One. They called it World War One. World War One. Taking a peace from the earth. That's the red horse. Jesus said you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Then there's a black horse that follows. That black horse is famine and pestilence. Actually inflation. He's got this... Uh, holding up these uh, balance and uh, talking about the price of things. And that comes in the, in, the, in the wake of war. And then there's a third one, the pale horse, which is death in the grave, which is the consequence of war, famine, and pestilence. Jesus said, these things you're going to have. But the end is not yet. There in Matthew chapter 24. He warned us. Remember then the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecute me. They will persecute you also. And if they have kept my word. They will keep yours also. We're living in difficult times. We just better accept that fact. And it's significant then. That the fifth seal. there The opening of the sixth seal. The first seal is Jesus riding out on his white horse. And the next three seals are the consequences of men's reaction to the gospel. Wars, famines, pestilence, and death. And then in the fifth seal, we have the prayers of martyred saints pleading for vengeance on their persecutors. The sixth seal, then, is the answer to that prayer. It says, The kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Where's Jesus now? He's on the throne, sitting at the Father's right hand. And the day is going to come when these people are going to say, Oh, hide us from the face of him that's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the who? Lamb. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that might be scary, but a lamb? (laughs) Ah, the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Why do nations rise and fall? Why do kings get ejected from their thrones? Why do nations appear and then disappear from, the, from history? Because of the wrath of the Lamb, not politics. Jesus is reigning. Yes. It says, for the, the great day of their wrath is coming. Who can stand? Revelation six fifteen to 17. So the visions of Revelation 19 describe then the day of that coming wrath. This vision also depicts the armies of heaven. Chapter 19, verse 14, riding on white horses. And they follow Jesus who strikes down the nations with and rules them with the rod of iron as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what it says. The very words that are used in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And while it may appear at this time what's happening in the world doesn't look like anything like this, you can best be assured it is happening. So when you read or you see the news on and you're tempted to to be discouraged about, don't. Just say, hey, it's the wrath of the Lamb. (laughs) It's being worked out. That's why Paul here instructs the saints to be strong in the Lord and in the, in the 
uh, strength of his might there in Ephesians 6.10. Saints must understand that they are in a spiritual war along with Jesus. We're on, we're on the ground. He's up with on the, in the throne. We're on the battlefield. And we must prepare for it by putting on the whole armor of God, standing firm with the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18. What's our, where is it, what's our battle praying? That's how we fight it. Praying. Great privilege of relationship with the believers to Jesus Christ in this battle then has to be governed by the believer's prayer life. Just like Jesus. Then the seventh seal describes the offering of the incense, much incense on the altar, the golden altar there in heaven. It says, with the prayers of all the saints. You don't think your prayers are important? This is part of God's battle strategy. It's shown there in in the uh, seventh seal. When the angel offers much incense on the golden altar in heaven, he offers it with the prayers of the saints. And what happens? The angel takes the golden censer and he flings it to the earth. And what happens? Then it it tells us that there are... uh, I'm going to find my place here. There are peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and a great earthquake. The judgment of God. Mm-hmm. God wants us to understand that His people on earth are winning. Therefore, Jesus is asking the Father to glorify Him through His death and by His followers. So we read there in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption of sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, just like Jesus. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with Him. Yeah, we're going to suffer. So then, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 3 verse 6. In whom, that is Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am, uh, what I am suffering, which is your glory. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. Now I'm going to close with, with this, the Son's approach. How does the Son approach? He says, I have given... You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. That's verse number 2. Adam was supposed to have this authority. won't go into all of that. But he sinned. Therefore, God sent Jesus as the second Adam to accomplish this task. To rule with righteousness over the earth as God's stewards. And we are in Christ as His sons to do it. God's plan is to destroy His this sin-damaged earth. And He's going to restore it to its original state. Thus Peter declares in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, as to according to His promise, we are wait, awaiting a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Although Peter calls it a new earth, it actually means refreshed or renewed. Not entirely new. 
Jesus created it. And He created it perfectly. And then He redeemed it. Now He's going to restore it. Wow. And Peter got this information from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Or 66, verse 2. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Wow. So in order for the children of Adam to carry out this authority, they must be renewed. So the new birth. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, that's what we're doing. We've been renewed. Now we take this message of renewal to those that are around us. With this message, God, that Christ, uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, or the message, excuse me, of reconciliation, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you, on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our, for our, our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses seventeen to twenty-one. Jesus is was the agent of the original creation, and he's the only option for the new creation, which is in the sons of Adam, and again to bear the. God's image. Therefore, Jesus was given to them or gives to them eternal life. In order that for Christ to fulfill this work, he must die as their substitute to free them from the curse of sin. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He was put to, to uh, he has put on him he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he sees his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, verse 10. And this creates a, a, a direct connection between humanity and God again. Therefore, God must glorify Christ. And Jesus also then defi defines what eternal life means. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Go to your neighbor and ask him, do you know God? Oh, I know about him, but do you know him? And let me ask you, do you know him? That's eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, that's verse 3. And the word translated here to know is gnosko, which means a full relational knowledge. In turn, Jesus is glorified in them. Verse 10. And when Jesus returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Christ, which we read there in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, he will be glorified then in his saints. Thus Paul declared, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. So, how's your love relationship with the Father? How involved are you in this great work of the kingdom, pressing toward the new creation? Are you praying as Jesus urged 
in his last instruction on the cross? Before the cross? I'm going to close with this quote here from J. Stuart Holden. How many Christians there are who cannot pray, who seek by effort, resolve, joining prayer circles, etc., to cultivate in themselves the holy art of intercession, and all to no avail. What do we need? He says, here for them and for all is the only secret of real of a real prayer life. Be filled with the Spirit, who is the Spirit of grace and supplication. Father, Lord, we ask, teach us to pray. Help us to join in this great battle that's going on right now. And we don't, we don't, we, 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 we want to see one thing, but Lord, we don't see it. But Lord, we know that it's going on. It's taking place. Your will is being done. Jesus is renewing. He's gathering the people out for his name. He's bringing wrath and judgment against the world. He is bringing everything to that conclusion so that when he comes, the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And all those who do not name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will follow in their stead. Lord, but there will be a host that no man can number out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and people who will be gathered around the throne to worship you and to celebrate, Lord, mission accomplished. Oh, I long for that day. Keep us faithful and true as our Savior is faithful and true through the word of our God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.